All right, welcome to the third lesson on the book of Ruth. Let me begin with prayer. It's always a good thing to do when you don't know what you're doing. And when you do know what you're doing. <laughs> Lord, we come to you and we're grateful for this day to gather and just look at this story you provided for us called Ruth. It's written over 3,000 years ago, yet still has encouragement for an application for us today and you put it in your inspired word for our for our instruction and our enjoyment we ask that you would make this this a very very good morning for us to just hear what you have to say as you open our eyes and we behold wonderful things from your word in your son's name amen all right so ruth you don't have to look at that. Don't worry. Those are my own notes <laughs> that you're looking at in your hands, so you don't feel like you need to orient yourself to the screen. But to um, kind of review where we've been, overarching themes, kind of an overarching theme that I've been, I think we're seeing and I'm bringing out is there's providence all over the book of Ruth. And let's look review it quickly through chapters one and two providence was everywhere in chapter one it was providence in bitter circumstances if you remember Naomi was in very bitter circumstances she was a widow far from home she lacked provisions she was there because of a famine she was hungry and she lacked security or rest as Ruth would call it namely she had no future no hope she had no no heirs she had no one to take care of her as she got old. Everything was abysmal for her. And yet, providence showed up. God, in a very quiet way, in Ruth 1.6, it says, Ruth heard, or not Ruth, Naomi heard that the Lord had visited his people and he had given them food, which actually in the Hebrew was bread, which was a nice plan words because the home that they come from is Bethlehem which means the house of bread so God put bread back in the house of bread and it was God's calm little way of getting Naomi to return to home go home it's almost like a prodigal she's comes to her senses and she's going home but he also gives her a Moabite daughter-in-law who will just not leave her alone who agrees, decides, insists on clinging to her and going, making Naomi's God her God and Naomi's people her people. And that's Ruth. So God providentially provided the promise of bread and she doesn't know it yet, Naomi doesn't see it yet, the promise of a future and a hope, which is going to be in this nuisance of a travel mate called Ruth. You don't normally take questions, but I gotta ask. This. All right. <laughs> when when Ruth says, you know, wherever you go, I'll go. Your God will be my God. Your people. Yes. Is that the Holy Spirit speaking through Ruth? Providence. Is, what what moves her? That's that's not. <laughs> it's not. Did, where did that come from? It is amazing. And why 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 not? Why, why isn't it the Holy Spirit? I mean, it got into the Bible, and it got recorded in the Bible, 
and the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. So yes, to answer your question, the fact that it's made it in the Holy Scripture, yeah, it's the Holy Spirit. She spoke what the Holy Spirit wanted her to speak, and it made it into this text. So yes, that'll answer your question. Um, how that happened, it's, it's like a miracle. How could a Moabite woman who knows little of God suddenly want to leave everything behind and cling to a widow who has no future and hope? It's amazing. It's, it's amazing at the draw of God. God can draw the most unexpected people to him providentially. So that's chapter one. Of course, she doesn't, Naomi doesn't see it yet, and she's actually crying out when she gets home, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. But in chapter two, which I titled Providence's Life Happens, because Ruth took the initiative to go find bread in the house of bread, instead of sitting and moping at the house, which perhaps that's what Naomi was doing, gets home and just doesn't want to do anything and Ruth's like hey we got to go eat let's go find some food and apparently Ruth had heard from Naomi that hey what the way we do things here in Bethlehem God has put a provision in his law that the the farmers and the harvesters and the reapers aren't supposed to collect everything they're supposed to actually leave stuff behind for people like us widows poor sojourners which describes us well all three of us all three of those things describe Ruth, a sojourner, poor, widow. So she goes and takes advantage of it, but she, she seeks more than that. And the reason she's seeking more, she's not just going to wait till the reapers are gone for the day and go pick up what they forgot. She's actually going to go while they're working and ask permission, can I glean while they're here so I can get more? And what's motivating her is she's her care for and her love for her mother-in-law. She needs, she needs more than just food for herself. She needs food for Naomi. So she's looking for more. And she's wise enough to look for it. She actually asks to look for it from a man in whose eyes she shall find favor. She needs... This is only going to be true if the person she's gleaning in, the, the field she's gleaning in, is generous and is, is nice enough to at least allow her to stay. Not just some other Israelite who would rather her be gone because I'd like to keep those scraps for myself. I wouldn't want to be generous. So Ruth sought favor, and the providence is that in 2-3, the author says she happened to come to the field belonging to Boaz. Happened. And it's definitely a wink-wink in the way it's written because before she because right afterwards Boaz is described as a very godly man he shows up too he just happens to show up and he's got God all over his lips because he's telling his workers the Lord be with you that's not a common greeting that an employer gives his employees I don't think I've never been to work and had my employer say the Lord be with you Here's a godly man, whereas Piper would say, he's God-besotted, a God-besotted man that just, he's, he's got God on the mind. And, and God brought Ruth 
to this man's field of all the people. And he was also described as a, happened to be a, a friend, a relative of Naomi in verse one. So this is no chance meeting. This was, this, this God providentially caused this. And Ruth gets the favor she was looking for and way more. She's over abundantly just favored by Boaz. Boaz just gives her so much that she comes home with an epa of barley that day which is six gallons in our measurement. And Naomi is surprised, like, wow, where'd you go? And when she tells her that she found the field of Boaz, the lights go on for Naomi. And Naomi suddenly realizes, oh, I forgot about Boaz. He's still around? Wow. And he did that for you? Oh, wow. And then she gives this amazing statement In Ruth 2.20, Blessed be the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. That is the theological statement of the book. From this bitter widow comes this amazing theological truth that actually summarizes the whole point of Ruth. This is what Ruth is about. The Lord is a blessed Lord. His kindness which is the word for steadfast love, chesed in Hebrew, his kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. She thought he had forsaken her and her dead. Now she knows otherwise. And it all, it all came about, turned on a dime, if you will, with Ruth showing up with all this barley, more than she should have, and telling her, oh, by the way, The name of the man in whose field I was gleaning is Boaz. That's providence. Providence at work. He has completely changed the heart, the eyes, the hope. He's given hope to Naomi. She's a different woman now. And the way chapter 2 concludes, the assumption is that this continued throughout a long period of time. It said through the barley and the wheat harvests. So Ruth has now got like a full-time job as the favorite gleaner of Boaz, gleaning among the sheaves, the, the reapers, as they're, they're even pulling it out for her. Boaz said, pull stuff out for her. This is going on for a season of months because harvest time can, especially through two different crops, can last a while. And I believe, I know uh, as far as the timing, the, the, this is probably the season for the barley harvest, we believe, was like early summer, late spring, and then the wheat harvest would have followed. So maybe like April through June is barley, and then June through August, early September, maybe wheat. So this is like a three to six month period where God is providentially providing. He's met the needs of the two widows, the the provisional needs. He's giving them their bread. And he's kind of given them a little security by giving Ruth a place to glean safely. But that's just short term. The need, the real need that Naomi sees is we need long-term security. And that's what launches her into what we see here in Ruth chapter 3. 
which I'm going to entitle Providence in the Secret Place. Providence had acted again, but this time in a very secret way. And what I mean by the secret place, well, if you know the story of chapter 3, this is an unusual story. This is the most memorable chapter of Ruth. This is the one that will stick with you the longest, partly because it's the weirdest, strange. Stuff goes on in chapter 3 that makes you go, what? Why is this in the Bible? Kind of stuff. But we'll see. Providence is even behind this secret place. The secret thoughts and dealings and plannings and um, just trying to make things work out in a very private, quiet way. God is behind that too. So starting with chapter 3, it says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, that's Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rests for you, that it may be well with you? Should I not seek rest? The word rest. You've heard me say it a few times. That's what you need. You need rest. Notice Naomi's thinking of Ruth. You need rest. Now, if you remember back in chapter 1, that word showed up earlier when Naomi prayed a prayer back on their way to Bethlehem for the two, at the time, there were two girls with her. She was praying that they, the Lord would give them rest in the house of their husbands in Moab. She was praying that the two girls would find rest back in Moab, away from me because he obviously ain't giving me rest and you ain't going to find rest with me, so stay there. And now she's here and she realizes this is where God's called me and there's a possibility of rest for Ruth. Ruth can have rest. And the idea of rest, it's a security. Not, it's not just marriage. It is an inheritance a family incorporated into a family. Now remember, Ruth is still a foreigner. She's still not incorporated into the life of Israel. And yet, this idea of rest is this will get you not only a husband, maybe you'll have a kid, but I can't. If you remember, Ruth was barren in chapter 1. Ten years without a kid. Maybe you're not really capable of that, but that's okay. If You could just get a husband and become part of the family of, in her mind, Boaz, will get you in the in crowd. You're going to have, you're going to become a fully vested Israeli citizen and your future will be set. You'll be taken care of. You'll find what I'm calling rest, what Naomi's looking for, rest. So that's what she's looking for. She's looking for rest and she's looking for rest for Ruth. No mention of rest for herself. Just make a note there. That will become big later. And then, verses 2 through 4. Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? 
See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet, and lie down. And he will tell you what to do. And then Ruth's going to reply, all that you say I will do. And she will, actually. But before we get to that, we have to make a little, set a little background for this. Because this, this is, this is like, huh, for us 21st century minds in Western culture, America. It's like, what are you telling her to do? (laughs) You're telling her to go to a threshing floor and, well, wash and anoint yourself, put on a cloak, put on your best dress, basically. Basically, what she's saying is, go up to Boaz and ask him to marry you. That's what she's saying, without saying it. She's saying that. Because when she met Fine Rest, she says, you need to get married to a good man who can... And this is the man. And there's an opportunity tonight. And, and it's obvious Naomi has thought this through. She's probably been thinking this through since she got that first word months ago that Boaz is Ruth's benefactor. And she's like been looking for an opportune time. It's like, oh, I got it. This will do it. We're going to set you up. We're going to go and privately go to Boaz and essentially... Say, here I am, you can have me as your wife. That's, Naomi's taking a risk here. <laughs> She's assuming Boaz will, will look at it that way because he might look at it all, all kinds of other ways that aren't, aren't that noble. She's assuming Boaz will take this as a, a worthy proposal, not she's being a prostitute or something along those lines, which is the risk. It's a risk here. But she knows the character of Ruth and she knows the character of Boaz and she's like, eh, I think he'll read this right. Just all this planning going on. Now, a little background as to how this can even be making sense to our minds. And I wrote this little thing in here about leveret marriage. Now, leveret marriage... First of all, leveret is not in the Bible. There's no word in the Bible that means leveret. Leveret marriage is actually not a biblical concept, primarily. It's, it's a cultural thing that was in the cultures of the Near East back then. As a matter of fact, it still exists in some cultures today. It's not, this isn't just some ancient thing. It's foreign to us in Western cultures, but leveret marriage, you can Google it, and there are cultures that do this to this day. And basically what it is is... It's a protection for widows, childless widows, to, um, so that the childless widows are taken care of. The brother of the deceased husband, or the closest brother, is, should marry her, keep her in the family, and not let her go destitute. So it's really a protection for widows, is what it is. And if, if so, it just so happens that they give birth to a son... The firstborn son will take on, carry on the heritage and name of the older brother. But that's not always the case, of course. Not everybody 
has children when they get married and not everybody gives birth to a son. But there's that other little extra possibility. If the firstborn son comes out of it, then the firstborn son becomes basically, the idea is name him after almost the, the deceased husband. Certainly, if you don't name him, at least the heritage of him is, is carried on through this person. And this isn't just biblical. This is, this is what went on in the, in the ancient Near East. And as I said, it still goes on today. There's actually an example of it. I'll, I'll mention it briefly and talk about it more next week. There's a chapter in Genesis that's stuck in and seems out of place. It's kind of like this chapter. It seems out of place. And it's about leverage marriage before the law between Judah and Tamar. I think that's Genesis 38. Um, that was before the law. And there's a leverage thing going on where this widow of Judah's, um, Judah's daughter-in-law, is, doesn't, she's kind of being excluded. And there's this thing going on, and we're not going to talk about it any more than that right now, but it's, it's, it's just an indication that leverage marriage is predates the law. It's not something that God created in Deuteronomy. But in Deuteronomy, God did include it in his law. He did put some regulations for this leveret tradition, this leveret cultural expectation. And that's what I'm referring to here when I say Deuteronomy 25, 5-7 is where it's at. And I'm going to go look at that because this, this is what the scriptures do say about this leveret thing, which was already in the culture. It wasn't something that God said, do this. It's something like, oh, by the way, I know you do this. So if you do this, this is kind of how to regulate it, how to do it in a way that fits into our God-honoring culture here. 25, 5, and 7. 5 through 7, I'll read. It actually goes the whole paragraph. I won't read all that. Just the basic gist of it. Deuteronomy 25, 5 says, If brothers, brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Keep her in the family. Don't let her become a destitute widow. That's the main thing. And that's what God's saying. Don't let this widow become destitute. That's that's a regulation he's putting there. And then he also says, Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Verse 6, And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the dead brother, as I have already explained that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And then also verse 7, I'll, I'll just briefly say this. And if the man, this, is, this I think is, is where God adds something to, to this, or maybe, maybe, um, maybe not. Maybe this is part of the Levitt tradition too, but God is going to regulate this too. If the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, now it doesn't say here that, that's like a sin, a crime, something that needs to be dealt with. Take them out and stone them. Kick them out of the assembly. It doesn't say anything like that. Basically, it just says, Then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. And it goes on to say, basically, basically she, has, she can shame him publicly. So there's like pressure... God has said she has the right to go shame the guy for not doing, not taking care of her. So that's kind of what's going on there. It's just like God's kind of sanctifying this elaborate marriage thing that's already in the culture, saying, okay, take care of the 
the woman. If the guy decides not to, there's, there's like a will, it's like the guy can say no, as long as he puts up with the shame that she's gonna heap upon him. And that's really all the paragraph's gonna talk about. It's not gonna say, kick the guy out of Israel forever and stone him. It's just, there's, there's, there's some leeway here between the people. The woman has the right to basically demand it or, or pressure him into doing it. And he still has the right to say, nah, okay, I don't wanna do it. It's okay to do that. But the biggest, the big overriding theme here is don't let her go destitute. Somebody should take care of this woman. Don't let her just rot on the side. And Naomi and Ruth are kind of in this situation. They're kind of on the side. Potentially, if Boaz goes away and his crop fails and Ruth falls out of favor, potentially they have no security. But that can be changed if... Naomi's thinking if he marries her, if he does this, she's secure. So that's kind of the background. That's, that's probably why Naomi's thinking what she's thinking. It also helps us appreciate what's going on a little bit, even though it's strange to us. And then a couple comments, as I've already noted. Boaz knows Naomi very well. And this was talked about in chapter 2, verse 1. He was actually called a relative in that verse too, but the actual Hebrew word doesn't is more of a friend. It was a friendly relative, a relative who looks favorably upon her. And interestingly, in chapter four, we'll get to this next week, when he's wheeling and dealing on behalf of Naomi and Ruth with the other, there's, a, there's another guy who can also play this role. He says, Elimelech, our brother, is what the original says. <clears throat> he tells the other guy, it says in, in ESV, it doesn't say brother, it says relative. But in the Hebrew, it's our brother, you know, our brother died and left Naomi destitute. So Boaz considers Elimelech a brother, even though he's probably more of a cousin. We don't know the relationship. But this idea of, yeah, Boaz is treating Elimelech like a brother. He's also treating Naomi very well, like a friend. So it makes sense that Naomi would think Boaz, Boaz might be up for this. We're kind of stretching the, the letter of the law here a little bit. He's not really her brother. And the other thing that she's stretching is the Leverett relationship says marry the widow of the deceased husband. Well, the widow of the deceased husband is Naomi, not Ruth. So she's also stretching it by saying, okay, someone who's not quite my brother but thinks he is or acts like it or would love to be, he might be up to marrying Leverly, but he should, according to law, marry me. Maybe he'll do the same for my daughter-in-law. Stretching it. She's, she's taking it beyond. She's like, She's, she's thinking outside the box, if you will, but not in a bad way. She's being very clever and ingenious here. This guy who's not really my brother, but thinks he is. Maybe I get him to marry my daughter-in-law, who's maybe 20 years younger than her, different generation, younger than him, I should say. Um, because after all, the way I'm hearing the reports of how it's going out there in that uh, barley harvest field, there seems to be a little flirtatious behavior going on anyway. We, re we talked about that last week. 
He's showing favor. Maybe, maybe, maybe. So that's, that's what she's thinking. Being very, very clever and ingenious here. And she tells Ruth, go, go do it. You'll find rest this way. I'm sure Boaz is going to do it right. I think, I think he'll take the bait and he'll marry you if you do it this way. Do it, my, do it this way. And Ruth, to her credit, does it her way up to a point. And we'll read that next. Get back to Ruth here. Get out of Deuteronomy. Back to Ruth 3. And if you read, it says in verse 5, Ruth replied, all that you say I will do. And then you read 6, 7, and 8, and it, she does everything to the letter. She follows Naomi's instructions perfectly. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. So he may be a little, uh, a little drunk too, perhaps. Got to sleep it off. He's definitely in a good mood. His heart's merry. And he just lays down and goes to sleep. And then she, who's hiding somewhere, observing all this, waiting for the opportune time, she observes where he's at. She comes softly, uncovers his feet, and lays down at his feet, basically, is what it says in the original. And, um, you know, why uncover his feet? There's all kinds of people. I said, what's that? What's she doing with that? that? I mean, that's exactly what Naomi told her to do. And, I mean, one good reason, I was talking about the commentators before I started this, but Hubbard brought this thought to mind, and I think it's something to it. It's like the uncovering of the feet, probably, I mean, if you don't want to, besides whether, uh, what other symbolism it might mean, practically what it does is at some point, as the night cools, the air is going to go across his feet, and he's going to stir and be uncomfortable like you are at night. You shift and you put the blanket over yourself kind of thing. That's probably all. That's the practical reason. He's going to wake up when, when things get colder. And that's what happens about midnight. That's what happens. He stirs, and the stirring is just like, I'm uncomfortable. i got to shift position here. What's going on my feet? And then he looks down at his feet, and he sees the shadow of a woman. And this is the tense point of the whole narrative right here. Okay, now what's going to happen? What's going to happen now? It's, this, is, this is where the rubber meets the road, right? This plan of Naomi and Ruth has come to fruition. Here's this godly man with a woman at his feet. It's like, what are you doing here? And I like what it says here, the word behold, a woman lay at his feet. That word behold in verse 8, at midnight the man was startled, turned over, behold, a woman lay at his feet. The word behold is used throughout, especially Psalms and prophetic literature. Whenever the word behold comes up, it's like a pay close attention to what comes next. Behold. It's like Jesus saying, truly, truly. It's that kind of idea. Behold. A woman's at his feet. This is like the climax of the whole narrative right here. Wow. 
What's he going to do? Well, he does what any startled man in the middle of the night would do in verse 9. Who are you? <laughs> like, who are you? Actually, actually, the original would say, whose are you? Like, who are you and who, who do you belong to is what, like, I don't, are you mine? Are you someone else? Uh, whose are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. And I'll stop right there for the moment and just comment on the word servant briefly. If you remember in chapter 2, when she asked, why have I found favor? And she says, I am not one of your servants. I am least, I'm below your servant. And here she says, I'm your servant. So you can see that there's already an upgrade in her status from chapter two. She was a foreigner and not a servant. Now she's, she's, a, she's recognized as a servant. So that's just a, just a little brief comment there. I'm your servant. But then Naomi said, he will tell you what to do. And Ruth, he kind of ad-libs. She ad-libs here. She goes off script. She goes off script. That takes a little further than Naomi had thought. Ruth gets creative now. Ruth does something Naomi told her not to do. The first thing she does is say, spread your wings over your servant, which is sweet and wonderful because that's, that, she's directly asking him, marry me. But she's doing it in a way that, if you know, Boaz said something very similar in chapter 2. The same phrase is coming back. If you look back in chapter 2, 12, Boaz basically blessed her, prayed a prayer over her at the time when he first met her in, that, in his field. The Lord repay you for what you've done. A full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And she, she uses that, his words, and says, spread your wings over me. In effect, she's asking Boaz to answer his own prayer for her. <laughs> if you think about it. Boaz prayed, may you find refuge under the wings of God. And she's like, I'm finding refuge under your wings. <laughs> you're, you're the answer to that prayer. You're the one, you're God's provision for giving me refuge, for giving me rest. It's a beautiful little poetic tie to chapter 2, by the way, just the way these phrases keep coming back. There's a whole lot of ties to chapter 2 in here. So that's the first thing she does. Now that's sweet. There's nothing, nothing unusual about that, that request. That's actually beautiful. That's poetic. That's worthy of sticking in Scripture. The Holy Spirit must have given her those words, as Dale suggested earlier. But then the next thing she says is, this is, this is more off script. For you are a redeemer. Hey, I, the only reason I, was, I even thought that this was off script, I always assumed this was part of the script. But if you look back, the word redeemer, the idea of redemption is not part of Naomi's plan. 
and it was the commentator Hubbard who this really opened my eyes this opens up a lot the idea of redemption is Ruth's now Naomi did claim that Ruth or that Boaz was a redeemer in 2.20 but she does not bring that up again in 3.1 through 4 her concern is for Ruth's security not for her own you get yourself married well what Ruth's doing here says you're not just the guy who can do the leverage thing you're the guy who can do the redeeming thing which is a different thing in the law there's a provision for redemption in Leviticus 25 not Deuteronomy 25 Leviticus 25 where the next of kin is commanded actually this is not an option is commanded to procure and buy the land and the property and the inheritance of the deceased and keep it in the family that's what Leviticus 25 is about and we'll get into more detail that next week because that plays big in chapter 4 but this is a different thing redemption is not leverage marriage however this is Ruth being clever not just Naomi Naomi was clever Ruth is clever too she's, she's heard about this redemption thing Naomi mentioned it to her She's probably looked it up in Leviticus and said, whoa, somebody's supposed to be buying this property that we have here that nobody's just sitting there been lying fallow for 15 years plus. There's an inheritance that needs to be taken care of. And if somebody does, that will set up Naomi for life. That will take care of Naomi. So what Ruth actually does here is not only say, marry me, redeem Naomi. So you got Ruth kind of like laying down her life for her mother-in-law. That should remind you of something. (laughs) So what's Boaz going to do? How's he going to respond? It's all in Boaz's hands now. Both Naomi and Ruth have took huge risks. They've laid it all on the line. They're vulnerable. Boaz has plenty of options. He can really do a lot of things right now. You could imagine about 20 of them in your mind, and I'm sure every single one of them is bad. Most of them are shady. Some are shady. Some are evil. He could do all kinds of horrible things right now to this very vulnerable woman laying at his feet. But does the right thing he does the best thing his response let me get back to my spot here 310 his response 
May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You've made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Right there, I'll just leave it there for the moment. He blesses her. He's grateful for what she's doing. And he sees, he makes this interesting statement. You've made this last kindness greater than the first and that you've not gone after younger men. Now we'll have to dig into that a little bit. First of all, just say, he says, my daughter. Notice that. He didn't call her my servant. That also lets you know her improved social status. She's not just a servant anymore. Now she's like a daughter. She's a family member. It also is speaking to the fact that you're probably 20 years younger than me. You don't usually say that to somebody that you're, you would want to marry. Okay, my daughter. You've made this last kindness greater than the first in that you've not gone after younger men. Now, what was her last, what was her first kindness? What was her first kindness? He's saying, this, this kindness is greater than your first kindness. Your first kindness was chapter 2. When it was reported to him all that you have done for Naomi. Remember that? And he was amazed that you had laid down your life, in essence, for Naomi, coming out here, taking care of her. That's been reported. That is a great kindness you did for her. And he's saying, this kindness is even better than that. And before I get into the explanation of what that might mean, first of all, we have to recognize, as I said in my notes, the word for kindness here is chesed. This is the word translated steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. It's that word again. This is the third time it showed up. It showed up in each of these chapters. Chapter 1, Naomi's praying that God's chesed will be upon Orpah and Ruth. Chapter 2, verse 20, when Naomi's eyes come open with hope, she says, Blessed be the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead, whose chesed, whose steadfast love has not forsaken the living or the dead. And here's the third time it's used. And it's not applied to the Lord this time. It's applied to Ruth. Your chesed, your steadfast love for your mother-in-law, this is greater than what you did before. Before was amazing. What you're doing now is even more amazing. You're laying down your life for your mother-in-law to secure her future. By this redemption thing that you brought up. She didn't bring this up. She was thinking of you. You're thinking of her in this moment. And then, of course, what he's also, I think, qualifying with this, you could have gone after younger men. It's like you could have anybody you want. You, you're an attractive gal who's done, you're amazing. I mean, you've been working with my young men. I'm sure they've been commenting, wow, she's amazing. 
you didn't go after any of them. You're going after me. And why are you going after me? I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad to do this because I think you're amazing too. But I mean, there's 20 years. Come on. You're my daughter. But you're doing this for Naomi. You're not just doing this. What would probably be, make more sense? Marry the young guys. Have a longer life. Perhaps have more kids. You're going after the old guy who's probably in his mid to late 50s. And you're just 30s, late 20s, 30. We have to say it's late 20s because she was in Moab for 10 years unmarried. So she's not a teen. There's, there's a, this, your kindness for Naomi exceeds what it did before. That's what that statement is saying. And that you're not going after young men who you could have had. You're actually going, you, you want me to redeem you and Naomi. Marry you, but redeem Naomi. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. Now, that's just ironic, isn't it? What did Naomi tell Ruth? He will tell you what to do. And now, here's Ruth telling Boaz what to do. I will do for you what you asked. You just told me what to do. That's just so ironic. <laughs> A total flip. That wasn't part of the plan. She went off script. Now Boaz suddenly is doing Ruth's bidding. Go redeem us, both of us, primarily. Naomi, don't just marry me. Redeem her. And in, in a sense, by doing that, she's also saying, don't just take me tonight and make me your own, which maybe that's what Naomi was thinking he might do. Oh, you're here, you're available, let's just become married before the eyes of God right now. No. Redeem her. Make that part of the package deal. It's a package deal. You're not just marrying me, you've got to redeem her too. So he says, I'll do, I'll do, I'll do it. But then he brings up the surprise, another nice little hitch to make everything go, oh, no. The plan was coming together, and then you had to bring this up, Boaz. There's another redeemer closer than I. It's not my responsibility. There's another guy you should be doing that. It's his job, not mine. And perhaps that explains why he hasn't made a move to redeem Naomi until now. Because he knew this other dude is supposed to do that. He's, he's a closer cousin or brother or something. It's not explained what, but he's closer. But there's another guy. It's true I'm a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Verse 12. Remain tonight in the morning if he will redeem you, good. Now that has to be sarcastic. Like I'm sure he's happy that it would happen because you get the sense he really does want Ruth because of what's going to say, what he said already. Actually, I skipped it over. You are a worthy woman. I skipped that in verse 11. All the fellow townsmen know that you're a worthy woman. Have to, that was too important to skip. Worthy woman. The word worthy, that showed up before in chapter 2 as a description of Boaz in verse 1 Boaz was a worthy man mighty man of valor in other contexts 
He's using the same word to describe her. You are a mighty woman of valor, if you will. You're a worthy woman. So what he's essentially saying is, yes, you're my daughter, but you're also worthy, worthy like me. We're compatible. This could work. You're exactly the kind of woman I would want as my wife. That's what he's saying. So yeah, I want to marry you, but I can't. There's, a, there's another redeemer. And if, if, he will, if he'll redeem you, and what he means by that at this point is, not only, if he redeems Naomi, he's got to marry you too, the way you just set the rules. You just put it down there. You just made a part of a package deal. If, if we want to do this the way you want to do this, you have, this guy has an opportunity to marry you instead. I'll do what you ask. What you ask is redeem her and marry me. They go together. The other guy, I'm gonna ask, he's got the right to redeem you. And technically, if you think about it, yeah, he's closer as a brother, so he, has, he should be doing the Leverett thing too. So yeah, it's really all on him. Not that it's, it, there's, there's an irony here when he's saying, good, it's good that he would do that. He's like, not, not what I want, but it's the right thing to do. He's willing to put aside his desires and probably Ruth's desires and definitely Naomi's desires for the sake of doing the right thing. So there's this hitch thrown into the whole story. It's like, oh no, there's, there's another unexpected roadblock. Another redeemer. Oh, goodness. And that's what chapter 4 will be about, of course. But, as he said, I will do this. And basically, he said... <laughs> You're going to be redeemed one way or the other when I'm done with this. Because he would like, he likes this. He wants to do this. But he's going to do it the right way. And that's what he does. So the first thing, now now it's all in Boaz's hands. Boaz becomes the main character because it's up to him now. He's got to follow through on this. He's promised redemption to Ruth and Naomi. Now he's got to make good on it. The first thing he does is he protects Ruth's reputation because what she's done could easily destroy her reputation. He starts it with a lie down here until the morning, stay by me. Don't go home in the three in the morning stuff. There's lots of unsavory characters here in Bethlehem. Don't go there. So he's protecting her. Stay, I'm going to keep you, keep you safe here. But you've got to get up before anyone can recognize you because if they, re- if they recognize you, they're going to start talking. And I've got some stuff to do tomorrow, and I don't want rumors complicating that. Plus, I don't want you. I believe you're a worthy woman. All the townspeople believe you're a worthy woman. I don't want anything to soil your reputation. So let's get you out of here in the dark before anybody notices recognizes you and the word recognize I made a note there is the same word that was used in chapter 2 for notice why have you noticed me she said a couple times and here he's like we don't want anybody to notice you now (laughs) then you were noticed now let's make sure nobody else notices we got that little literary link there between the two and don't go back empty handed to your mother-in-law so he's going to provide for both widows by giving them six measures of barley which is 
believed to be, it's not, we can't be sure because it didn't tell you it was an EPA or whatever measure. It's probably even more, maybe up to twice as much what she took home that in chapter two. And that's, that's like, my word's good. You could almost think of it like this is a bride price. You could, I, I had that thought. It's not in this text, but I think he's kind of like, this is like the down payment I'm making on this deal. I'm going to complete the promise, but right now here's a little taste. Here's a little taste. So he sends her home full, full with way more barley than she could probably carry. That's also kind of an irony because remember Naomi came back empty, she claimed. Now she's pretty darn full. Naomi's full of barley. She was empty in the beginning. She's also now, well, her daughter-in-law is going to get married to somebody. And then the final reassurance. Verse 18. Naomi replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. I know Boaz, he'll get this done. And wait, wait patiently. I put a little reference to Psalm twenty-seven, fourteen. There's several references about waiting on the Lord. That's that's kind of what this is saying. Wait, 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 wait patiently. God's going to do this for us. God's going to providentially do this for us somehow. And we hope it's we hope we hope it's Boaz, not Redeemer number one. But we'll, we'll have to wait and trust that God will providentially work that out too. In chapter 4. So just to bring bring it to a close in a couple reviews. I've already said a lot of this, so I won't review most of it. This last page called Questions. Just think about how God's providence is evident in Ruth chapter 3. It's actually hidden extremely well. There's no there's only two mentions of the Lord, and that's when Boaz responds to Ruth at that moment, that critical moment, says he mentions the Lord twice. So you, you could read chapter 3, and a lot of people do, especially, not, they think this is just the connivings of Naomi and, and Ruth. They're just, and, and it's like God's kind of out of this. This is just two widows just trying to make best with what they can. But the fact that Boaz brings up, the Boaz's response and his, his promise to make this right shows you something that the God is behind this too there's providence going on here and it'll become more evident in chapter 4 when he actually does make good on the promise but God one lesson to take from this is God actually he works through our plans through our thinking his providence isn't always his just dropping out of the sky and parting the Red Sea when we need it parted. It's, he puts us in situations, he enlightens us to opportunities, and the ingenuity of Naomi and Ruth, he, works, he worked through that. He blessed that. He worked in this secret place in their hearts, their heart of hearts. They're thinking this through, and he's got a promise of meeting their need. But the biggest takeaway I want you to see, and I hinted at it earlier, and I hope you saw it, how does Ruth 3 actually foreshadow the cross? 
and I wrote some reasons and the significance of Ruth taking the initiative to redeem Naomi, lay down her life for Naomi, lay, become vulnerable. There's a lot of parallels between that and what Jesus did on the cross. There were a lot. I mean, it's not like Ruth is a type of Christ. I'm not going to go to that extreme because there's obviously differences too. But in that one thought, she laid down her life for whom she loved. And that's what Jesus did for us. Laid down his life. Became very vulnerable. Went to a very, very vulnerable situation where all kinds of things could have come out bad. All the options for Jesus going to the cross could have come out bad. It turned out the best way it possibly could. And that's because God the Father accepted the sacrifice and made good on that redemption and glorified Jesus and said, that's my beloved son. He raised him from the dead. God vindicated Jesus' sacrifice by raising him from the dead. And in that sense, Boaz is acting like God the Father here. He's vindicating Ruth's laying down vulnerability for her mother-in-law, and he, he heaps glory and praise upon her for doing this. So there's a foreshadowing in Boaz of the Father's response to the cross. And the one who's ultimately redeemed is Naomi. And at the cross, the one's ultimately redeemed, us. So yes, this chapter has hints of what God's going to do 3,000 years later. Well, not 3,000, 1,000 years later. 3,000 years to us, 1,000 to Jesus. And that's, we'll bring it to a close with that. I'm going to pray and let us go. All right, Lord, thank you for your goodness to us through your word. Thank you for encouraging us, encouraging us to wait and know that your providence works behind the scenes for your glory and our good. Thank you for laying down your life for us. Thank you for redeeming us. In Jesus' name, amen.